RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Okay, it's time for our legal hub for Wednesday morning. Joining me, Katie Ashby Coppins and Nick Kearney, to talk about some of the cases out there, the legal cases and legal issues this week. Nice to see you back, guys. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. All right, let's start with facial recognition or facial detection. Mm. I'm not a fan of this technology, I've got to say. No, and it's pretty incredible. So this one here is a situation where Westpac has confirmed that they are using uh, facial recognition at their signage boards to uh, direct advertising to the person standing uh, near or in front of the um, uh, advertising board. So these are those screens that you can see that are located around the uh, the shopping mall, and it might have things on it such as the map of where to find things. And they're utilising uh, facial recognition to identify the sex, um, determine the age group, um, and then they're directing advertising specific to that cohort that yeah. a particular person fits within. Uh, so it's uh, without your consent. Um, they're suggesting that it's anonymous and that they're not identifying the person. Um, but it's something that people probably need to be aware of because I can't imagine that there's a big sign as you walk into uh, Westfield saying, by the way, uh, we are using facial recognition to uh, determine advertising that we put before you. Okay, and so they expect the person just to go, oh, that's me, where, where do I get that? <laughs> when it comes up on the, is that how it works? <laughs> I think it's the kind of the apple that is to tempt whoever the person is. So, mm. for example, if the person's a, a woman, um, I think it was over the age of 45, um, and it was, uh, it, there would be advertising about you know how to shop to your drop, uh, whereas right, those yeah. that were under forty five, it would be a Samsung ad. Um, on how does it know the age? How does it know the age? It's apparently so smart that it's able to pick up those details. Gosh, I mean, it's it's presumably doing lots of different things, you know, determining hair color, possibly wrinkles. Well, that would be very high resolution if it was wrinkles. <laughs> it's going right in, right in. Yeah, but it's a good question. And then, you know, how old? How are they able to determine um, age? That's very detailed. Yeah. And even gender or sex, mm. which word do we use? Um, I suppose uh, female faces, male faces have different sort of data points or something. Yes, I, but how does the computer know or how does the system know if a person identifies as something that they are different to as they appear? It would be interesting to have a go at trying to fool it, wouldn't it? Like going with a mask on or something like a, a Reagan mask and see if <laughs> see if old men's clothing comes up or something. <laughs> yeah, look, who knows? It's obviously been trialled and tested and it's been considered to be quite um, successful and effective. Is it an invasion of privacy, do you think? Uh, I consider that it potentially is an invasion of privacy, especially if they haven't got permission from you. Um, they've got an argument that it's still anonymised because they don't identify you as the person. But the issue is, is that you're going on to uh, private property when you go into a, a shopping mall. It's not common property. It's not 
the street. It's not council property. It is private property. So they get to set the conditions. Uh, it's kind of like a contract. They set the conditions upon you know, the basis of which you enter and utilising this new uh, technology is, is something that they're doing. Presumably it takes images. What happens to the images? If, do we know? It's a very good question. I could see you drafting some fantastic OIAs there, Paul. Because it must go oh, on a... No, we couldn't OIA it. Well, it must go on a database somewhere. Presumably it's held and stored. Um, and no, you couldn't OIA it because they are a private entity, not right. a public one. So I think it's probably a pretty fair question that you could ask... Um, you could ask them to prove that they're not holding your image, though, couldn't you? Could. How could they do that? <laughs> well, you do have a right under the Privacy Act to request any information that they hold. So that would probably yeah. be, be your better avenue on you yourself as a person. Hello, Westfield. Um, I was in your store on this date. Uh, please provide me all the images you have of me. Any mm. other, Any other personal information? And do you take their word for it if they say, well, we actually don't have, we don't hold the images, but how do you know? It's easy to hold stuff in a computer file, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. I really don't. Can one of you go into Westfield if we can do a, a, a trial? Here's a, um, here's a theory. Um, you drive into Westfield these days, particularly in new markets, and you, it's all about electronic parking. They take your parking by your number plate, electronic number plate, right? And you've got a Westfield app. And you open the app, I've done this, you open the app and it says, you know, how long are you going to be here for? And you put in your number plate, I'll be here for an hour. Great, thank you, Nick. You know, you get an hour free parking and that's fantastic or something. Like that. So now you're there, right? And you, and, and these things all, all come with, you know, screeds and pages of screeds of, of terms and conditions. I, I consent, I, you know, enter, tick the box, push submit. Yep, I enter the, and agree to the terms of Westfield use of the car park while I'm in the Westfield Mall or something. You can. I wonder if it's buried deep in there somewhere at the very bottom, and there's some of the terms and conditions that part of your entry into Westfield, and therefore the car park is is using that uh, recognition to to uh, enable Westfield to um, do their marketing, and advertising, you know, programs. It probably is mm. actually. Yeah, and the other thing, I, I mean, this is I just thinking about it. It's almost a, an extension, I suppose, or. A, an electronic extension of what uh, Cambridge Analytica were doing those years ago in the election, wasn't it? And they were harvesting data from people and targeting uh, in an election campaign, targeting their advertising towards certain um, uh, people and, and databases and voters and whatever, just through the people's interaction on Facebook and, and other social media channels. So, um, it, you know, the, the the harvesting of data is an immense, an immense um kind of uh, business now, a worldwide business, isn't it? And, you know, yeah, Katie's right. I mean, you, you, you certainly would be allowed to ask Westfield through the Privacy Act if they hold personal information on you, such as that there. Um, and I just wonder, you know, the other thing I wonder, because I don't trust these big organisations, I always say that the two biggest you don't have to worry so much about, uh, you know, the NSA or the CIA or the GCSB here being spying, spying on you, because the biggest spies in the world are, um, uh, are Apple, Google and Facebook, you know, and uh, they know everything about you pretty much. Uh, and I just wonder if, you know, the likes of Westfield and other big organisations, and we, in fact we know that Apple, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, they were, um, I think they were um, 
uh, I think in, I don't want to get this wrong, I can't really defame anybody if I say this, can I? But I'm fairly certain a few years ago they were caught, if that's the way to put it, uh, colluding with the FBI and some of their phone data stuff um, and the way their phones are put together. So, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if some, you know, Westfield's not that big an organisation, but eventually um, some of these organisations will be selling their information to the likes of um, Google and Amazon and others uh, for their advertising slash inverted commas marketing purposes, close inverted commas. Yeah, and, you know, you're driving along the road and you're going past an electronic billboard and Westfield's file photo of you is being applied to that and suddenly it's something that might interest you. You just don't know how the data is going to be used, do you? And that car park thing, that's a, that's just a, that, that's a, that's a gimmick, right? Because, I mean, people have been parking in car parks and malls for decades and, okay, there might be a few freeloaders. It's not a huge thing. That's to get the terms and conditions ticked, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, in Westfield, I think they offer you... I actually think they offer you, um, well, certainly at Shore City and North Shore, that's where I, I go up there, uh, they offer you two hours um, free parking if you're going to use them all there. Uh, and it's all electronic, you know, they, um, you don't need to get a ticket. They just take the number plate electronic when you drive through the barricade and, and, and let you go when you're leaving sort of thing. So I actually haven't, uh, for that one anyway, I haven't had to use any particular app, but certainly in new markets, um, you've got a big app that you must um, must use, and um, yeah, it's it could be a way of giving your consent. I, I suggest. Let's get on no. to Farage. Let's get on to Nigel Farage. A lot of people are talking about him being debanked. What's going on here? He came out during the week uh, on his media show and put it on Twitter that. His bank, who he had been with for a, a very long time, 20 or 30 years, I think, in the UK, had written him a letter and said, Dear Nigel, um, we are closing your accounts uh, in 30 days. You've got 30 days to uh, remove all your money from your accounts. And he, you know, he's concerned about that. Uh, that included his business account, uh, as well as his savings or personal accounts, which would make it very hard for him to do business, obviously, in the UK. They couldn't render an invoice and get paid, uh, et cetera. He tried to ring his manager and they wouldn't take his call or, um, or called. He couldn't get a meeting. And then eventually somebody high up in the bank uh, wrote him a letter uh, and said, oh, it's because, uh, well, it's a commercial decision of the bank uh, because you are a, a PEP, P-E-P, which in uh, money laundering terminology is a politically exposed person. And so uh, the way that this works now is that uh, banks, financial institutions, law firms, uh, real estate agents, accountants and the like, they are what are called, uh, in New Zealand at least, reporting entities for money laundering purposes. And all of those reporting entities uh, must um, regularly identify their clients and if, in certain situations must try and identify where their money has come from. And then if they have some suspicion around the client or where the money has come from, uh, they must uh, report that to, well, here in New Zealand, to the Department of Internal Affairs, DIA. Uh, so uh, as part of as part of those checks, uh, when you're um, when we're checking out uh, particularly new clients, not usually existing clients, um, and we don't do this, we have an outside agency does it on our behalf. 
part of those checks is you, you've got to make sure that the person knocking on your door is not a pet, a politically exposed person, because they are deemed to be a high-risk person uh, because they're more susceptible to bribes and corruption and, and their money, you know, they've got their money through um, being, you know, extortion or being bribed and uh, through uh, enterprises like that or whatever. So, or like Hunter Biden. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the president yeah. of the United States. Okay. Yeah, yeah I think yeah, we know. Yeah. So politically exposed people and um, they, the bank here in England, have decided that Nigel Farage is a PEP, a politically exposed person. Of course, that being a PEP is one thing. Uh, we, you know, I know at work we have identified a couple of PEPs uh, in our investigations when we take on new clients. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the person uh, is a money launderer or has taken their money or got their money or they're involved in you know, ill-gotten gains from their proceeds um, of their business. It just means that you've just got to take a little bit more care uh, in dealing with them and and what have you. And so, but they've decided here, despite, uh, you know, despite um, his good service, and despite who he was, an ex-member of parliament, European Union, uh, you know, obviously a key campaigner uh, against, uh, in favour of Brexit, I suppose, um, the banks decided, despite all of that, we're de debanking you, decommissioning you. Uh, you're a pep. You're you're a high risk person, and we don't want your money. And so they've given him 30 days to close his accounts and get his money out. Now, he has basically said, well, um, he's not sure whether another bank will now, um, you know, take him on board. If, if this particular bank has um, treated him like this, then can he live and operate his business and life in the UK? And he doesn't think he can at this stage. So um, very, very interesting. Uh, I guess it's a matter at the moment of, of watch the space. And it's, I mean, we, it's, a, it's an interesting um, exercise uh, be, because, you know, if without, you know, without, um, without uh, banking facilities, you, you, I mean, sadly, um, you, you, you know, you can't barter with people over trade like you used to back in the old days. You, you can't live in the modern world. And he's now suggesting, I, I, I mean, I, I had, um, I was talking to some friends during the week who'd come back from the UK and they're an elderly couple, been travelling for about two months through Europe and the UK and uh, being elderly, they're very prone, very inclined to carry a bit of cash with them, pounds and euros. And he made the comment to me, just talked to them um, late last week, that very surprised in the UK how few establishments took cash now to pay yeah, to pay yeah. for items. Very few. And so he, everything was on a debit card and a credit card. And so it's not, you know, so if this bank has got to just shut down someone like Nigel Farage and so you can't have a bank account, um, you know, he, he can't draw all his money out, put it under his bed and pay for cash. Because, um, in my experience of my friends, um, restaurants, cafe, other other organisations, you can't, you, you know, you, we've just spoken on, um, we just spoke here uh, a few weeks ago about the um, prohibition now on paying for something in cash over $10,000. So, you know, he, he's got no chance of actually uh, basically living without, <laughs> without a bank account, and most people don't, and he's having to consider moving countries. It's the ultimate cancellation, really, isn't it? It's 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 what it is, and and they're punishing him, surely. They well, have to. 
it's hard to escape hard to escape the conclusion that he speaks out against the establishment and um, the establishment don't like it. Um, particularly, I suppose, if he spoke out so strongly against Brexit and maybe some of these big banks and financial institutions might struggle with not having Brexit in place, that they've decommissioned him for sure. I mean, is it against the law to deny a bank account? I mean, it should be a right, shouldn't it? Especially if there's no cash. Do we have any because it'll happen here inevitably to someone. I don't know who will be the first. Maybe it'll be me. But is there any right to have a bank account, especially if no cash is in the system? Do we know? I'd say, again, it's a contract with the bank for them to provide you a service. So they could refuse you on um, grounds that you are you don't satisfy all their criteria. But how can you live? How can you live if you can't do, like Nick was saying, any transactions and no one wants you? I mean, what happens? It's why people should be particularly and very concerned about the situation that we are facing with banking, banking systems, and um, the potential for centralised digital currency. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it forced people like, Farage, perhaps, or others, to um, trade in the black market of, of cryptocurrency and bitcoins and those sorts of things, you see, potentially. Uh, it'll force people underground and, um, you know, perhaps. Um, but Katie's right. I mean, it's just it's just a contract. A bank, you know, can say, we don't want your custom, um, you know, as easily as a, a cafe can, we're not serving you, or a bar say you're drunk, we're not serving you, or or whatever. The interesting thing about banks, of course, um, and, and hopefully people um, who listen to this show should be aware of this because I know that um, this sort of information has been spread far and wide on this, you know, for people who follow this show, that um, you put your money in the bank, uh, you loan that money to the bank. So you are simply a creditor of the bank uh, and they take your money and they pay you 2 or 3% for the, for the privilege and then um, I'll lend it out to people like me and you others to buy houses and to buy cars and whatever out and invest in something. So they on lend it out and they get paid 8% and they pay you three or four. So that's kind of, you know, a very simple way of putting it. Uh, and so w- if you go into the bank and say, well, I want my money out and if they, they can quite rightly say, sorry, um, we're not, we're not repaying it back to you yet because, um, you know, we don't, we don't have to, the terms of our, Terms and conditions of our um, facility mean that you know my mum had to had a term investment at a bank here in Auckland that she wanted to um, to take out, close and take the money out, um, a reasonable sum of money, um, well into, you know well into six figures. And the bank said to her, "You've got to wait thirty days before you can get your money out." And she needed it as a matter of urgency. And they said, "Sorry, here's, here's you know um, clause thirteen B six of the." <laughs> the rules you have with us, you signed up to, and you signed down here 30 days before you can get your money out. So if you think that it's your money, you can walk into the bank and get it out when you, when you want. You can't. It's not your money. It's theirs because you've loaned it to them. Right. And you're an unsecured creditor. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> which is what, which is why, you know, when there's run on banks in the US banking um, system, you know, and banks have shut their doors and say you can't draw your money out, um, that, that's why because they can literally do that because it's not your money. It says you've loaned it to them and they can't afford to pay it back. They haven't got it. But if you can't even extract cash from the system because it's not there and you have to have a bank account to do that anyway, if even if it was, I mean, 
that's it for you, isn't it? I mean, you might as well go live on the street. Potentially. Um, well, you've was... got happy friends and relatives who'll help you out. but And also this anti-money laundering thing. How much of a problem was that, really? Or is this something that's been used to drive people like Farage out of the system? Yeah, well, I mean, that, I think that's a topic in itself, to be honest, because that's a very interesting question. Uh, and um, and, and to, to my mind, it's the prime example, a good, very good example of uh, using a sledgehammer to crack a walnut, really. You know, um, I can think, you know, and I say this to a lot of people who, who ask that same question, been doing what I've been doing for 22 years, and I touch a lot of client money, and a lot of transactions, commercial and property transactions, and um, 22 years, you know, thousands and thousands, upwards of 15 to 20,000 transactions potentially I've been involved in, you know, maybe more, I don't know. Uh, I can count on one hand the number of uh, people that I thought, way, well, yeah, I've got to be careful about you and where this has come from. You know, literally walk in a brown paper bag or a briefcase full of money or something like that. Or it's come from a very, you know, offshore jurisdiction and with, with not much information involved. So I'm saying out of, you know, 20-odd thousand transactions, less than five, that I can actually go, whoa, what the hell's going on here? Uh, and yet and yet, what they do with, of course, the um, AML laws is they punish every single body in the country and force them to go through all this um, hassle and cost um, for what reason? Well, um, you know, if you're a little bit um, suspicious of the state, um, you think you know the. I think I know the reasons. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe we'll talk about that more later yeah. on sometime. Because yeah. I always wondered about that. You know, um, it's a useful tool. If yeah, you want and, and look, to cancel and people ultimately. It is, and it was set up. Uh, it's set up uh, by the world. I think it was. 10 or 15 years ago through they had, the World Banking System has what's called Basel Accords um, and they're done for the World Bank. They're kind of where all the major banks go through, you know, the World Banks and, and the World Banks said, we're going to do this and the, and, the, and the major banks around the world have to sign up to it um, and um, Basel's a place in Switzerland and I think it started there sort of 15 years ago. Yeah. Said, oh, we're, we're worried about money laundering now. I think we might need to do this around the world and uh, it fills us through and look, I mean, Really, you know, we're just a small pawn in a, or you know, a small fish in a big pond here in New Zealand. But um, we really have no, um, because of the nature of how it, it starts uh, in terms of international laws and international obligations. It's very hard to try and um, and refuse to enact it. To be honest, and if you're a politically exposed person, I mean, that's a that's a wide range to be interpreted, isn't it? I mean, anyone who's has any sort of active role in campaigning or even supporting a political party or anything, even us here doing what we're doing, we could be deemed that and, you know, a pep. And it would be easy, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Katie? Who is a pep a perpetrator or what's a pep? A political uh, a exposed person. Politically exposed person. Right. Okay. And, they, and they have a definition in the Anti-Money Laundering and Counter-Finance and Terrorism Act here in New Zealand. Uh, and it, you, you're quite right, Paul. It extends quite quite broadly into, into family areas. 
um, as well. You know, quite a long chain of, of family members could be, you know, if your you know, mother's brother's uncle next to a neighbour's friend, you know, bloody ex-employee would use someone who stood for parliament, you could be a pet sort of thing, you know what I mean? They could um, um, sort of gin it up to make you one of those or make you appear to be one of those. Man. Yeah, okay. you know, and look, and and there's actually um, there's actually three uh, websites around the world, and I don't know what they are now, but there are free websites where you can uh, put a name into a database and get a, a free pep check. And oh. um, yeah, so um, oh, they, they, well, they used to be free because when when this all started in two eighteen, uh, our firm was doing its own pep checks using that world database that name rigging, but. We were told by DIA eventually it's not a very um, uh, sure way of doing it. So there's another way, uh, you know, um, we pay an outside agency now, cost about $3.50 a check or something. So mm. I'll put my name in it. <laughs> See what yeah, happens. Yeah, look, look, I might, I mean, we're, we're talking on the next topic now, perhaps, and Katie can talk about the next um, issue. Yeah. Uh, and I might go and have a quick um, squiz around, see if I can find it for you. Okay. Yeah, so let's um, move on to this case. And this I'm interested in because we had a quick chat about this before we started talking proper with the program. And this sounds like another one of those nasty, nasty things, right? This is Thomas versus Royal Foundation for the Blind. Correct. So um, just a small correction, Tom's versus uh, Royal Foundation of the Blind. Uh, so, Ms. Toms uh, was an employee of the Blind uh, Foundation uh, for uh, 32 years. Uh, she essentially, uh, her, her area that she looked after was essentially the top quarter of uh, the South Island, particularly focused around uh, Nelson. Uh, and uh, Mrs. Tom's provided all sorts of services to people um, in quite a large geographical area. Uh, Ms. Tom's herself was blind, uh, and when the uh, vaccine-ordered mandates came in for support workers in October, um, she was required to be uh, vaccinated for COVID-19 uh, as at the 15th of November uh, 2021. Right. Miss Toms was not went, went to see her GP. She couldn't. It was a re strong recommendation that she not be vaccinated because she had a pre-existing medical condition, which meant that it was not uh, recommended to her by her medical professional. And a exemption uh, or doctor certificate was provided. Now there was this quite underhanded business that occurred back in October of 2021, where there was a low level. Uh, not low level of importance, but there was a opportunity under the vaccination orders for those workers that require, were required to be vaccinated to get a medical certificate. And that medical certificate or reason not to be vaccinated could be given by any medical or sorry, any health practitioner. So the definition was really broad. It could be a physiotherapist, um, a um, a chiropractor, it was very, very broad definition. And it was a, a low level exemption in that you didn't have to do much to get um, to, to satisfy the exemption requirement. It was quite similar to the face mask exemptions, which was um, a reason that you 
uh, either a health or other reason that you couldn't be vaccinated. Uh, there was much, uh, and we heard quite a few things, but essentially what happened was when um, particular members of parliament learned of this exemption, um, they were irate. Now, this exemption had been floating around in the vaccination orders since July 2021 when the uh, border workers were required to be vaccinated. And there was uh, obviously a run on requests for these exemptions because it could mean that people could keep working and people were desperate to keep working. You didn't want to lose your job, but and here was an opportunity uh, to get a vaccination exemption. I think it was about two weeks before the 15th of November that the government in uh, um, complete flip-flop deleted that vaccination exemption from the orders so no one could get it. And they put this rather coy reference to a exemption that could only be granted by the Minister of Health. So it created this really fascinating situation where people um, would get, it, it would apply for an exemption and they didn't have the process uh, set up for absolutely ages um, or the information or the criteria. And the criteria also changed a lot. But essentially no one was granted an exemption under that um, or very few. I have digressed slightly because that's just the context in which we were working and there was a slight a, a comment made that Ms. Uh, Toms hadn't got a formal exemption by um, or from the Minister of Health. So Ms. Toms says, I can't be vaccinated. It's going to affect my health. Here is my doctor's exemption. Uh, and by the way, here's all these, I work from home anyway, but here's a whole lot of alternatives that I can do to avoid coming into contact with people, but still being able to provide care and services uh, in my role. The Blind Foundation uh, failed to engage with her uh, on um, her suggestions uh, and they in the end determined to fire her after um, a process. I couldn't say it was a full consultation process because that was something that the Employment Authority said, said was wanting. Uh, in its decision that Ms Toms was unjustifiably dismissed, uh, Ms. Toms was awarded, I think, three months leave. And because she was blind herself, she was not able to get another job. Um, so she received three months wages, sorry, not leave. Uh, but she also received $25,000 towards her in humiliation. But she was also directed to be reinstated by the Employment Relations Authority, which is generally your first um, entitlement that you can have. Interestingly, and I hadn't seen this decision but um, or, or, or commentary on it until uh, Nick mentioned it, the Blind Foundation has gone and appealed the decision that Ms. Toms be reinstated. And I just find that quite incredible. Why, why would you do that? What, what, I mean, I'm not familiar with these cases. I've never been in an employment dispute. Like, why, why, would, you, why would you do that? Look, there seems to be no suggestion that her conduct was inappropriate. There seems to be no suggestion that um, she was a paid uh, a, an employee that was you know didn't get on with people or you know wasn't compliant or could have been a pain. But she had been there for thirty two years, and um, 
there's no sort of blemish or reference to any blemish on her um, history with the organisation. So I just, my only feeling is, is that they want to have the last say and they didn't like the answer. Who would have authorised that appeal? How, how would that have been within uh, the Foundation for the Blind? How would that have been done, do you think? Ordinarily, I would expect that they would have briefed uh, yes, they had external counsel. The external counsel um, potentially gave advice on their prospects of getting the reinstatement set aside. And the person at the Royal Foundation uh, of the Blind that was making decisions could be their legal, uh, in house legal person or the CEO um, would then give the direction to appeal. It just seems like a very nasty thing to do. I infer it as vindictive. Yeah, vind- yeah vindictive. Um, and, but again, it's very hard to tell from the face of the documents um, if there's more to it. Um, but yes, it, it's it. If, gosh, if it smells like a pig, looks like a pig, it's probably a pig. Yeah, and what and. Getting back to the exemptions, because you mentioned that. Mm. So it, it, your doctor had no credibility in the no. end. No. Well, your doctor could still apply for the exemption and it would have to go up to the Ministry of Health and then it would be signed off by, I think it was Mr. Bloomfield at that stage. Um, and you were essentially, it was quite incredible because what you have is you've got this relationship with your doctor and it's called patient doctor confidentiality or privilege and essentially what was happening is that your doctors who potentially knew has known you for a long time had to reveal you your case to them well that's exactly right but you know you have client um or patient doctor confidentiality and then they should know you best and they should be allowed to issue you an exemption but you had to have this almost privity of um, medical information, which is a concept of introducing a third person. And now you've got the Minister of Health getting to have a look in all your medical records. Um, and I yeah, That doesn't make any sense to me. I, I can see no rationale for that unless you want people almost at the, at the point of a gun to take this stuff. Uh, well, it absolutely ended up being that way because there were so many people that applied for such an exemption when they became available, which was not to about 15, 16 days later after um, the 15th of November. I think it was about 7th of December 2021 that some of the first um, information on how to apply for these um, politician-provided exemptions. Um, and it was, <laughs> it really was uh, so tough I had I've not met anybody or come across anybody at all the people that I helped over this time who've received one of these exemptions. Um, and the uh, conditions were super narrow. Now that was the exemptions in the early days. The, the I think there was about four or five different revisions of this that I have seen. And then later as it got to the point where people had and COVID was spreading, an exemption or category of exemption came in that people could get um, an exemption for up to three months if they had had a positive COVID test. But not, I don't believe that any of the exemptions under any of the criteria 
meant that you could have an open or an undated exemption as in the exemption lasted for the whole time. It, they had um, time periods on them for even the people that had anaphylaxis from key um, ingredients within these products that we do know about. So what happens, Chippy or um, Ashley Bloomfield refuses an exemption, person has to take it, let's say, to maintain their life in terms of financial viability, job and all that sort of stuff, and something terrible happens to them. Who's to blame? Well, I think that that, um, on a liability perspective, that really has to rest with um, those in public office making the decisions. So Chippy, the Prime Minister, and Bloomfield and others, they've got to, they've got to be accountable for this, right? They've got to be. Look, I'd need to conduct some a bit of a deeper dive, but it could give rise to a, um, an argument of uh, malfeasance or nonfeasance in public office, and that's what they could potentially be exposed to. Do they know now, that they're exposed to that? I would hope so, that they were being advised um, suitably. So they now, know that there's trouble coming, right? I think that they are pretty... If I was them, I would, well, realistically, it wouldn't happen (laughs) in the first place. But if I was them, I would be aware of it it coming along. And um, the thing with malfeasance um, and nonfeasance in public offices is it actually gives you um, access to those ministers personally, as opposed to them hiding behind um, their their office or their position as a member of parliament. Um, Because that's bound to have happened. The advice that they're getting or being that, No, that, uh, the people have had very bad reactions to stuff when they were going for an exemption, couldn't get it, so Correct. it took the thing. And, you know, that that's that can't go un... Unchecked. And look, unchecked. they will... The issue that, that you have in, in New Zealand is that um, we have the ACC legislation, and the ACC legislation uh, essentially um, provides a... Um, a provision in it that if you've suffered a public and uh, a personal injury in New Zealand, then there's a no play um, uh, compensation scheme, which is ACC, which will see you paid out and a percentage of your required health care. Maybe. Maybe. And there's so many uncertainties with this at the moment because there are a lot of people that are getting their, uh, their um, ACC claims refused. Um, where they have been uh, injured. So it's a bit of a moving um, feast. And it's, you know, it's not even that these poor people that have gone and got vaccinated because the government told them it was safe and effective. They've trusted in their government. They've got vaccinated. They've been in- injured. They're not being gaslit. They're being gas-torched because yeah, it's, it's, well put. it's just heartbreaking and it's happening everywhere and one of the things that I was most upset or concerned about to see in the um, WHO pandemic treaty um, is that there is a requirement for them to put in compensation schemes um, for those injured uh, by these products or any other vaccine product in the future and so I can only imagine that that is going to limit um, as much as possible any compensation that a person could get and under um 
under the scheme. And certainly we can see that in Australia with the compensation scheme that they've put in there. I think it's a maximum of $20,000 that you can get. And it's, it's virtually impossible to tick all the boxes to even get that. Yeah, it seems to be part of the pattern, doesn't it? Make it hard, make it rare, deny, deny. Um, hmm. It okay. certainly does seem that way. But look, it's um, this this blanket refusal to grant any exemptions and then to require um, you know, politician involvement, it really, it, 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 it wrecked. I mean, how, who are they to know or understand a person's um, medical history? Uh, and, you know, it, 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 at the end of the day, it was so cruel and people were having to then choose between their jobs or um, a, a potential Some, medical <clears throat> event. Something has to happen there, for sure. Um, back to the Royal Foundation of the Blind. So they appeal this. How long does that take usually? Uh, it depends how narrow the area of or the issues on appeal are. Um, Nick might know what's happening in the employment courts at the moment, but if it's a narrow appeal on just her, the order that the Employment Relations Authority uh, reinstate Ms. Toms, um, then it could be a day hearing, could be on as soon as three months to six months. And what would her chances be if she's already had, you know, favourable outcomes? Is it likely that she'll win the appeal or is it hard, hard to even know? When the first and foremost remedy for an unjustified dismissal is uh, reinstatement to that position, they are going to have to have a darn good argument for not uh, for bringing the application. They must think they have one. They must think they have one. And again, I haven't seen I haven't seen the appeal documents to be able to comment. Sorry, but um, I will try and track. Um, it's not the blind leading the blind, is it? Had to get that in. Yeah, I don't mean her. I mean the, you know, the lawyers and the and the people running it. All right. Have we got anything more to say about any of the topics? Oh, just that. If you want to backtrack a second, just have a. Um, you talked about how the that pet person could go far and wide. Yep. So uh, two things. I've I've found a website that does give you. Um, a free pet check, uh, and but you you know to get the result properly, you have to sign up and register and pay money and blah, whatever. So yeah. anyway, um, you can forget that. But it does allow you, it does allow you to put the name in and at least get a first uh, a first hit, all right, without getting the full report. It's yeah, an auto, it's an auto prompt, auto prompt, um, you know, mechanism. Uh, and uh, Paul, I can safely say your name didn't come up. Oh, okay. Yeah, Katie, now that it's yours, but one of your co-hosts did. Oh, who? Mr. Hyde. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, so that Mr. makes sense. It does make sense. sense. Yeah, is a and the definition of a politically exposed person includes a person who, in the last twelve months, in, in a country held a government minister or equivalent senior politician position. Well, he, he, he was a minister 10 years ago. So, yeah, ages ago. Yeah. So, But he still comes up. Uh, anyway, there's a, whole, there's a whole raft here, head of state, Supreme Court judge, governor, reserve bank, senior foreign representative ambassador, et cetera, high-ranking member of the armed forces, board chair of some um, you know government department board, 
And then it goes down to say an immediate family member of the person referred to just above, including a spouse, uh, a partner being a person who might be the spouse or not, you know, like same-sex couples, I suppose, a child and a child spouse or partner, or a parent, a parent, Rodney Hyde's mum, old mum who died a few months ago at 90-something. Yeah. She, could be, she could be a pet. She, she is a very dangerous individual uh, doing her gardening uh Paul, let, let me reassure you. Laundering money through gardening. Yeah, absolutely. And looking at the gardening centre. Looking after her couple of cats, you know, in the rest home. <laughs> uh, but, then it, but then it says, and, uh, but also having regard to information that is public or readily available, any individual who is known to have joint beneficial ownership of a legal entity or arrangement or any other close relationship with a person referred to in paragraph A, or any individual who has sole beneficial ownership of a legal entity or legal arrangement that is known to exist for the benefit of a person. So I've uh, described in, in paragraph A. So, goodness, you know. <laughs> yeah, wow, it goes I, far I, I, and wide. Yeah, it does. I think, I think you were spot on, Paul, when you initially... It's like North Korea. You know, they, they punish yeah, the family yeah, yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah. If you wanted to be, I think, well, this information there has to be publicly or readily available. Uh, and, but interestingly, you see... Um, now, uh, this is where it gets a little bit of from a legal perspective because that all talks about, uh, they all talk about that, well, that legislation talks about beneficial ownership and uh, beneficial ownership is, you know, kind of through trusts and what have you. At the moment in New Zealand, there's a big push with IRD, uh, with uh, even some political parties to try and ha have full public information on trusts, who owns them, you know, who are the beneficial, et cetera. And, and, of course, the IID has just gone through a huge exercise to try and prove the top, you know, 200 wealthiest people what their assets are and their trust, what the name that so they can do an exercise on should they tax them more, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you, you know, at the moment, uh, the information, financial information around trusts and private companies is indeed that. It's private. It's not publicly or readily available. But, of course, there is a huge push to make it public uh, and and to get the state involved much more into trying to unravel some of these dastardly people who funnel their money away in trusts. Dastardly, yeah. Well, you know, so so I guess it's like anything. Um, you know, the creep the creep is is slow and small, but eventually, um, I think it'll it'll get you. So Rodney's the canary in the coal mine, as far as we're concerned. Yeah, he's a very – I mean, you sit, might sit next to him one morning and be very careful and, look, he'd have his hand in your back pocket there, Paul, I think. <laughs> Being a pep. <laughs> yes. I'll give him a pep talk. And then, and then he goes and gives it to his 94-year-old mum in Auckland and she funnels it into the casino. She goes and buys um, soil mix with it. That's right. To, to launder it that way. That's yeah. right, yeah. All right, so we're done, are we? Uh -huh. Yeah, we're done. another legal hub. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Nick. Good. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Katie. Thank you both. Have a wonderful morning. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.